This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. When was the last time you hugged someone that you care about? I mean, really hugged someone tight for longer than a second or two. How did it make you feel? Hopefully, it gave you warm fuzzies, though we know a years-long pandemic and social distancing have made it much harder to experience those satisfying moments. But science says that touch, from handshakes and high fives to cuddling, is so important for our relationships and for growth and our health. And Jay Baglia knows this firsthand. He's a professor at DePaul University's College of Communication who wrote a personal account of how touch helped him heal from a chronic illness. Welcome, Professor. Oh, it's a pleasure to be joining you today. So you wrote an essay about your experience dealing with cancer a few years ago. What was that like for you? Well, the experience was kind of mind-blowing. It came out of nowhere. I was originally put in the hospital under suspicion that I had pneumonia, but after a couple of days, it was uh, confirmed that I indeed had stage four uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm-hmm. So how did touch eventually play a role in, in the healing process? Well, in the clinical setting, uh, touch is obviously something that is employed instrumentally, uh, touch to accomplish a clinical task. And then there's a, there's empathic touch as well, or touch that communicates emotions or social support, touch which responds to vulnerability, fear, or uncertainty. Uh, I think that with oncology nurses in particular, there is an awareness that some of the things that they do with patients, uh, touch can sometimes elicit pain. For example, uh, as someone who was undergoing uh, six months of continuous infusion chemotherapy, I had a port implanted in my upper chest. And to access that port, whether to draw blood or to uh, administer chemotherapy, you had to uh, jab that port with a very sharp needle. Mm-hmm. And so touch was something that did sometimes include pain, but I think that the relationship that I developed over those months with the oncology nurses also showed me that their caring touch, just, you know, a hand on the shoulder. Uh, Often uh, it was also true that I would receive a hug of encouragement and, you know, a good job sort of pat on the shoulder or punch in the arm. I mean, so touch also had that other component of of empathy. Interesting. How do you feel that your recovery would have been different without those benefits of touch? Well, that's kind of what prompted the essay. Uh, This particular journal has a column called Defining Moments. And it was it was after a couple of years of uh, remission. You have to follow up for five years as a cancer patient. It was it was it was May of 2020 that I was walking home from my uh, my follow up with my my oncologist. And I started to really think about the fact that there are people who are being diagnosed every day during the pandemic with a life changing illness and that their experiences in the hospital are largely going to be bereft of that touch, bereft of those uh, empathic gestures from healthcare personnel that recognize that chronic illness or even acute illness is something that carries quite a bit of fear and apprehension. And so I really started to think a lot about how the pandemic has changed and will unlikely uh, not stop changing in terms of the role of touch in healthcare. We'll, We'll have to wait and see. We know that uh, when we have uh, these sorts of disasters, whether it was the Spanish flu or in 1919 and 1920 or, or with 9-11 and the changes that that 
brought to air travel, that these sorts of catastrophes elicit monumental change. And we'll have to see how we respond uh, not only with touch, but with the role of other nonverbal communication in the clinic as well. There's a big turn now towards virtual exams. I mean, to meet with a physician via what's essentially a Zoom call, although it isn't Zoom in healthcare. So we'll have to see how that affects our relationships with our with our professional care providers. Yeah, very good point. You are listening to Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we've been speaking with Jay Baglia, a professor at DePaul University's College of Communication. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you so much, Sasha Ann. We continue the conversation now with Alexandra Solomon. She is a clinical assistant professor and licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. Welcome back to Reset. Thank you so much for having me. What did you think about Jay's story? It's a beautiful essay. I really enjoyed reading it. And he did a beautiful job of kind of contrasting healthcare, you know, in the world we once knew and some of the fears and concerns about healthcare in the current day and age. And I think a lot about that as well, thinking about nurses burnout and physician burnout and how that how that affects the entire system. And we know that healing touch has been an aspect but that touch has been an aspect of healing for at least 5,000 years, Jay. Uh, Professor Baglia cites that in the, in the essay, a 5,000-year history of touch being a power of healing. So give us the scientific explanation for, for the role that touch plays in how we heal. Well, it's interesting to note that it is the fir- touch is the first sense that we develop in utero. So touch plays a huge role in our lives from our first breath to our last. And there's, you know, a variety of downstream effects of being touched or of touching somebody else. We know that it boosts our immune system, reduces anxiety and stress through the release of endorphins, and reduces the cortisol flooding that we experience when we're stressed, reduces our heart rate, our blood pressure, and touch releases oxytocin, which is associated with empathy, trust, and generosity. So there are all of these physiological and emotional, and then certainly relational. We know that in a parent-child relationship, in a friend relationship, in a couple relationship, touch is how we regulate ourselves to each other, how we co-regulate our nervous systems. It's a profoundly important experience and one that I think we take for granted because it's just so ubiquitous. So how much of it do we need? Is, is it possible to get too much touch? <clears throat> well, I do think in this pandemic, you know, I sort of think about us being divided into team uh, space cravers and team skin hunger, right? Some of us have been kind of locked in or spending more time than ever with family members, and we may be craving a bit of space. And then there are a lot of us who have had very little touch during this pandemic. So I think there's, you know, there's not necessarily a prescription for how much touch we need. And in fact, we might notice like over the course of our lives, we may have chapters where we want more touch, particularly when we're feeling vulnerable, as Professor Baglia described, mm-hmm. um, and times when we need less touch. I think, you know, for example, about new moms who feel pretty much touched out, you know, right. so uh, I think it can kind of ebb and flow. And there certainly are differences between individuals of how much they need and enjoy touch. Well, let's go back to the professor's point there at the end about this new virtual reality we're living in, right? And, and physician's appointments over Zoom, et cetera. How does that impact touch? Yeah. You know, as a, as a therapist, I have been conducting my therapy over Zoom. And one of the things I think a lot about is eye contact, right? So if I look into my webcam, 
my clients will, will feel like I'm looking in their eyes, but then I'm not looking at their faces. And if I'm looking at their faces, then they have the experience that I'm not looking in their eyes. So it's very, mm-hmm. the, uh, the idea of eye gaze in these virtual experiences is really tricky. So one thing I've been thinking about is when we are sharing space, whether that's even with the person who's making our morning coffee, I think we can really rely on eye contact and eye gaze. I think we probably need to be um, kind of filling our cups that way by looking at each other. We know that our we have a thing called pupil mimicry where our pupils will regulate to each other and that process of our pupils kind of dilating back and forth when we're making eye contact, it builds a sense of trust and belonging and connection. So that might be what we go on to replace handshakes and high fives and hugs with at least for a while is really looking at each other when we can. How does touch deprivation present itself when it comes to kids? Well, touch is hugely important in infant and child development. It is like not a luxury, but a necessity. So little, you know, when we're little, we are, we learn how to regulate our own nervous systems by having the big people who are caring for us regulate our nervous systems for us. So think about how we rock babies and we pat babies. So all of these sort of touch-based gestures communicate to a little person who doesn't have much of a nervous system developed yet, communicate to that baby, you're safe, I'm here, you're not alone. And so those early experiences of touch and having a big person regulate their bodies to the little person's body kind of lay the foundation then for us to learn how to soothe ourselves when we get older. So the the impact of touch for little people like cannot be overstated. It's why I love that parents and caregivers and teachers are doing something now where they will say to a little person like, do you want a hug or a handshake or a high five or, or nothing at all? Because mm-hmm. touch is a two-way street, right? It's relational. I want little people to have that experience that they get to say when and how they get touched. I think that's a really nice practice that I've seen so much more of lately of asking kids to weigh in on how do you want to be touched? What kind of touch are you available That for? piece is so important. Asking mm-hmm. first. For sure. Uh, family therapy pioneer Virginia Satir once said that when it comes to touch, we need four hugs a day for survival, eight for maintenance, and 12 for growth. Based on that, should we be concerned for the folks who have been living alone over the last two years? I think we certainly can be concerned. We certainly can be concerned. Like skin hunger is real. It's not, you know, it's it's not sort of like a a luxury. And I do think that there are, you know, for people who don't have touch available, there are some things that they can be doing to kind of create some substitute experiences. I'm thinking of things like um, rubbing lotion into their skin, really making sure that they're choosing clothing that feels cozy and good to the touch and warm blankets and weighted blankets. And even things like weightlifting and yoga are ways of just honoring like contact with the outside world and honoring like how much our skin needs feedback and care and attention. So those are not luxuries. And I do want people who are currently experiencing skin hunger to pay attention and to have a repertoire of how they're caring for their skin and their bodies during this time. And it's not silly. And the fact that they need substitute kinds of touch is not because they're weak or because they're doing anything wrong. It's because we are mammals and it's just it's just how we roll. It's just what we need. How does touch affect our personal growth? 
I think that's an interesting question. You know, I think for some of us, unfortunately, we had the experience early in our lives of touch being used for harm, right? Touch being used in painful ways. So sometimes then part of our healing is creating relationships that are restorative and starting to create for ourselves experiences of touching and being touched that are benign, that are gentle, that are pleasurable. And so touch can be something that, you know, if we have a history of painful touch, we can work on healing ourselves through restorative nurturing touch. And, um, and touch, you know, I think touch helps us feel safe and it helps us feel like we belong. And yeah. then we feel brave and we feel brave to try new things and to grow and to stretch ourselves. So I think that, that the connection between touch and self-growth or personal growth is is pretty strong. Interesting. Well, just a few seconds left with you, Alexandra. I understand that you're also working on a new podcast that's about important relationships in our lives. So aside from touch playing this role in our connections, Give me a brief list of, of what else you discuss. Mm. This has been such a wonderful project. The, the show is called Reimagining Love. It's a weekly show. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. And it's a, a variety of kinds of episodes. Sometimes I'm in conversation with a guest expert and we're talking about dating or mm-hmm. breakups or sex or family relationships. Or I'm doing a deep dive into some aspect of relationships. And sometimes we feature a real relationship story, whether it's a parent-child relationship or a sibling relationship. And we're kind of using um, looking at their story of transformation and healing and taking yeah. lessons from that into our own lives. So it's been a really, um, really wonderful project. That's awesome. Alexandra Solomon is a clinical assistant professor and licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. Thank you so much. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.